Hey everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Rob's Reliability Project. This is Blair Fraser here, um, and this is a uh, very special episode for me. I get to sit down with two former colleagues of mine and discuss everything about artificial intelligence. Um, as you may have heard, Steve and I are, are separating this podcast into two separate streams. Um, Steve is really focusing on over the line of pushing um, these new products, these new technologies, these changes over the line of sustainment to achieve um, lifelong value, um, where I'm focusing my podcast specifically on new technology, looking at what's currently here today is also emerging technologies that are coming down the pipeline. And this episode uh, is focused on artificial intelligence. Um, Vinod Rodriguez and Chao Zhu Wang are two people that I have worked with over the last three years, spent quite a bit of time, in fact, pretty much every day, learning about artificial intelligence, where it gets applied, uh, and more importantly, where some things that AI is not going to solve or some of the challenges they're not going to solve. So these guys have spent the last three years uh, really entrenched in, in our industry. Um, you know, We've had to teach them about maintenance and reliability fundamentals, and they've had to teach me about you know the proper data set, the maturity going in to be able to use AI. So this podcast is 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 really looking at over the last three years of them implementing AI within our industrial environment. What have they learned? I hope you really enjoyed this podcast. As always, please follow us on LinkedIn and please post your your comments so we can keep this content going and make sure. We, we end up putting out what you want to hear. And of course, if you want to be a guest on the show, you have an idea, you have an opinion, you have a new technology, please feel free to reach out to us. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome everybody back to Rob's Reliability Project. This is Blair Fraser, co-host. And today I have with me a very special, well, two very special guests and, and, uh, one that I would consider some mentors and some friends. Um, they are from Cortic.ai. And if you know my background, um, it is the company that uh, uh, I was involved with from, from the start. So these guys have um, really been able to teach me, um, well, pretty much everything I know about uh, artificial intelligence, uh, applying AI, um, in, in some cases were not to apply AI in, in a better, broader sense. Um, so on the, on the uh, podcast with me today is, is Vinod Rodriguez. He's the VP of uh, Customer Success at Cortic.ai and uh, Chao Zhu Wang, who is the Chief Data Scientist, who is um, ranked or was ranked one of the fifth um, ranked Kegel Masters in the world. Did I say that right, Chao? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. And and just for the background, when I ever repeat something that Chow has said in AI, he goes, yeah, you pretty much got it, which means I didn't, right? It was the best that I could do with the information I have, right? Um, so yeah, so Chow is, is, is literally ranked. Um, um, and if you don't know what Kaggle is, Chow, maybe you can just give a, are you able to give a brief overview of what Kaggle is? Uh, in one sentence? Sure. sure. I mean, try. it's like... It's a platform where, where like AI practitioners come and then do a lot of competitions, I guess. Right. And then some, some of them will win some prize. Some of them will just get some experience. Right. And this and is then a, they, they rent you basically. Sorry, it's more than one sentence. No, you nailed it though. And I think <laughs> I think it's 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 a you know world worldwide competition where the best of the best in this field come to compete and and yep. whether it's it's for um, prize money or it's just for saying that hey I'm really good at what I do right um, 
and it's 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 almost like crowdsourcing. You compete, you can you can join teams together to solve these problems. But essentially, people put data sets up there of the problem, and you try to solve it, right? Mm-hmm. And and to, to to be you know ranked fifth in the world. And in in fact, I'll go down a little bit of a rabbit hole and chow how we first met um, was when we formed Cortic.ai. We were we were uh, obviously Rajiv and myself had very limited knowledge about uh, artificial intelligence. Now Rajiv was was a lot better at it than I was, right? Because my background was on the shop floor, uh, particularly in maintenance and reliability. So here's a guy that, you know, spent early part of his career turning wrenches and now I'm talking about AI. So when we were looking, we had said, okay, if we're going to do this artificial intelligence, because we knew it was going to have a new, huge, huge impact, not just to maintenance reliability, but the entire manufacturing or energy, energy sector as well. So we had to go out there and find someone that really knew their stuff. We came across Chow, um, and his profile. And we said, geez, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have Chow, right? Like, there's no way we can get someone like that, right? I'm not going to go through the courting process of how Chow came over. But uh, um, I remember when you said, you're, you know, yeah, I'm, I've, I'm ranked pretty high on Kaggle. I'm thinking, and, and most of us go back um, that don't understand Kaggle. Now I know Chow and Vinod, you spend time in this space, but a lot of our listeners are saying Kaggle or even Kegel. Is he saying Kegel? And if you don't, if you don't know what Kegel exercises are, um, you got to look it up. Just Google it right now. Don't, don't stop listening to this podcast, Google it. And that is not <laughs> what Chow is good at, right? Um, there's a difference between Kegel and Kegel. Um, so it's going to be great to kind of continue to pick your brain, uh, Chow, because obviously I've done that over the last three years. So you can continue to do that. And then Vinod, you come with a very unique skill set of, of implementing these, these uh, analytic product of all forms of, of analytics um, across particularly the manufacturing sector, right? And I think, you know, what I've learned from you was I remember sitting down, I would say probably about four or five times with me trying to understand the analytic model. So um, like a PCA versus machine learning and why does one differ from the other, right? <laughs> and stuff like that. And I think that's the, the value um, you know, and, and what people want to hear in this podcast. So welcome, welcome both and appreciate the time. Thank you. Blair. Yeah, it's awesome. Thanks yeah. for having us, Blair. Um, so, you know, you guys have been doing this for, for over three years now. And, you know, obviously when I was involved in the day-to-day business, we talked to on average, I would say between five to eight customers a day with specific applications asking, hey, do you think AI would work? And of course, you guys have done projects um, taking that essentially that dream to the reality. So over that last three years or so, um, specifically in our industry, how are you finding people are using AI and where are they getting started? Right. So from all the conversations, what we've learned over the past few years is the, the buzz is starting to wear off, mm. right? The, the, the fancy shininess of AI and machine learning and industry 4.0 is starting to settle down and people are looking at what can actually be done, where it's actually being practical. And um, now, it, you know, we, we went through that whole evangelism phase uh, where we had, to, we had to shine about AI and say, you know, anything and everything can be done in AI. Now, then we went to the educational phase and saying, okay, given the data sets that you have and given what you have in your, on your manufacturing floor, the kind of data you're collecting, the sensors you have, the processes you have, this is what you can do. And now we're actually in that practical, tangible implementation phase where even our customers themselves can start to understand you know, given my digital maturity, given where I am in in in, um, uh, in collecting data, in using data, and having my users be aware of my data, this is what's uh, these are the kinds of applications I can expose my my site to, and we're starting to see a lot of 
um, low-hanging fruit, so to speak, or, or quick tangible results in the reliability uh, genre or reliability sphere for sure. And of course, and of course, if you move up the up the value chain into actual production and quality measurements, there's a lot of the different applications for AI there as well. Yeah, and I think the the big takeaway there is 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 you're right, and I just haven't sat down enough to think about that. But we are, if you look at the the Gartner hype cycle, we are leaving that hype phase, that that peak, if you will, and we're getting to we're getting to reality. No more is just AI. This very cool, as you said, shiny object, right? It, it, people are are really looking. For results now right yeah they they pretty much know what we what you need to have so do i need to have this this asset being monitored for some sort of failure and if so then what kind of failure am i looking for do i have the data to keep capture that failure or am i trying to predict some sort of value like an efficiency of this asset or the the life cycle of this asset so now now people are coming with very specific questions right. and it makes our job a lot easier and and Xiao's job a little more easier and tangible as well because he can directly say yes or no you can achieve this or no you can't achieve this right and i think that is the the biggest thing is is knowing off the bat if your project can succeed and i remember chow us working together and i'd say hey i think this is possible you look at it like yeah no it's, it's it's not right you brought that that reality um specifically to it now chow i'm curious as as you know because you spent time outside of of our industry obviously doing um data science artificial intelligence um are, are you relieved that we're leaving that hype cycle now that finally you know it's not just this pie in the sky we're, we're actually getting to to value um right so um basically i think i think like the hype probably is is going away but the problem is um a lot of people still probably don't get or are not familiar with how to like approach AI problem properly. So a lot of times like it's really, um, they're trying to approach it with the unrealistic expectation or like they are trying to solve a, a too simple problem with like super complex AI approach, right? So really um, still, I think a lot of times it's not well designed, so makes things much harder. But like, I think a lot of like for a lot of use cases really, they have to figure out or they have to prepare um, the data set or whatnot mm-hmm. to make sure that actually this is suitable for AI. A lot of times that's not the case yet. Right. And interesting because when I often think about it and, and what I've preached and, you know, I'm always subject to being wrong here is, you know, telling people don't boil the ocean, don't try to to solve too complex of a problem to start. But what you just said is, you know, people are trying to solve simple problems with very advanced analytic techniques, which which is the opposite of what I was just talking about, which, which sounds like it's an issue as well. Yeah. It's, it's two extremes, right? So. <laughs> and they, yeah, sometimes it's like, yeah, it's, maybe you just take this number and times it by its own number or something. They might be able to solve that problem versus using um, analytic techniques or just, and, and I, I, I'll be fully admit, I brought a lot of those problems to you and, and you came back and said, yeah, that's like a people problem. Just why don't they just figure out, you know, how to label that data I and mean, you don't need to do something like that right and end up like i'm like yeah it's a good point <laughs> yeah i so, think it's probably some side effects so like those hyped ai stuff like mm-hmm. all those people are claiming they say hey everything's ai so make them think you know even a very simple problem should be solved by ai as well that's right and it's funny because we always said that and i said um in in our field of i'll say ours is generally as a listeners and maintenance reliability we always said the dangerous thing was 
always heard was I've always done it that way. So why are you doing something? Well, I've always done it this way. And I'm starting to say that what is taking a place of that dangerous statement now is, is specifically, you know, with these advanced technologies saying, you know, give me your data and I'll magically find the answer you're looking for. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, looking through a needle through a haystack. And that's, that's really not the way to approach starting to use AI, whether it's from a maintenance and reliability perspective or any application within our industry is then I'm, I'm assuming you guys will agree that it's not the way to start a project. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, Xiao, I got a question for you. How, how would you, what would you, what would you use to define a good problem for a data scientist or for AI? Right. So yeah, that's a very good question. So basically I think, um, well, before I answer that question, right? So I want to circle back a little bit to why we're trying to apply AI in this industry at all, right? Is it just because we think, hey, it's ready for AI? Or is it like because you feel missing out or whatever because everybody else is doing it? Um, so, so, so really a proper way to do AI, it depends again on you know, different industries, I guess. But like um, a lot of times we, we try to, at least like you know, people have done successful applications in other domains we try to transfer that to you know, other domains that's not very successful yet, right? For example, a lot of times you do want to look for a massive amount of data, for example. Um, usually it's not the case for, um, for, for our domains actually, because a lot of times you, you're dealing with one single asset or, or whatnot, right? So the way to approach it really depends on the process, but usually it's an iteration process. Usually you start with a very solid baseline and you go beyond that and, and, uh, and, and time goes by when you collect more feedbacks, et cetera, then you are able to train or you're able to maintain the model in a much better way than you know, your initial baseline. But a lot of times people think it's a one-off deal that you, you, you kind of just go um, you know, clean the data and then train the model, deploy the model and they are done with it. But like, mm-hmm. that's really the very, very first step of the machine learning life cycle, really. Like you have to make sure that, for example, um, if you, if you um, have a very bad model um, and then you, are you done with it? You say, hey, it's not solvable. Well, I mean, you have a bad model to start with and then that doesn't mean that your model can be improved rapidly um, once you are in the iteration process. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you might be able to build a very good model right off of the bat. For example, you might get like super high accuracy predicting failures or whatnot, but it doesn't mean that the model won't decay, like the model performance won't decay. So mm-hmm. like really the machine learning, you know, isn't really a one-off deal that you really have to manage the, 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 the life cycle, all, all, all those models. You have to do the monitoring, you have to make sure that, you know, the inputs, outputs have good quality, etc. Um, so really it's a, it's a like life cycle management than just like one off um, POC project. Right. I think that's interesting is, is, you know, treating the ML, the machine learning or a model as a, as a living, breathing creature, right. That, that has a life cycle that has to be managed. You can't just, you can't just do it once and approve a concept, set it, come back 30 years later and wonder why it's not predicting failures accurately. Exactly, especially for our domain, right? When you think about it, like it's really, you only have a few failures for say a specific asset, right? Like if you try a model and then you can predict those failures, you know, from the the historic data, 100% with 100% accuracy. 
Does that mean it can predict, you know, future failures with 100% accuracy? Uh, that depends, right? It might be, right? But, but like, doesn't mean in future, um, your model won't decay and all those new, new failures came up and then your, your same model will be able to capture that, right? So you have to make sure that the model is still um, with good quality, et cetera. So yeah, when, when, when you know, most people f- look at AI and there's a lot of, you know, again, we go back to the hype, it's you know, machine learning or automatic learning. It just seems like, well, it's just going to learn this and, and figure it out for me, right? It's going to mm-hmm. learn those unique patterns and combinations in the data. So how does that statement come back to needing to maintain those models? Will it just not figure out it's starting to drift and go back or is, is it's not all the hype we lived up to? Well, I mean, it depends. So again, um, so uh, so in machine learning specifically, um, we have multiple types of like learning approach, right? So usually, um, if you say uh, if you put put into two categories, it could it be online learning and offline learning? And if you put into say, um, it depends on like whether you have label or not. You might be talking about like supervised learning, unsupervised learning, or whether you get feedback and still label. That's reinforcement learning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so for some type of learning approaches, you actually can learn on the fly, like online learning or reinforcement learning sometimes, really you don't have to like keep training, retraining the model. But a lot of times, at least for um, use cases like ours, uh, most of the time, I would say more than 90% of the time, you are just using supervised learning, which is basically training um, your, your model on offline historical data and then deploy your model online. So, so there's no like, um, you know, uh, say, hey, um, the model is gonna know the accuracy is, is, is decreasing and the model is gonna automatically rejoin. So that mechanism has to be added as another layer in, on top of your modeling, basically. So you need say, uh, a, like ecosystem for your model training as mm-hmm. well as for the model monitoring. Right, and I think that's where platform comes in. Because what I've seen in my years of doing it alongside you guys was, you know, we um, data scientists or, or pseudo data scientists were able to build these models in Python or whatever it was, right? And be able to do these offline. But to take a model from offline and deploy it on real-time data is a whole different story, right? Exactly, yeah. That's where I see, you know, the, the why Cortic exists, right? Is is the platform, the ability to build those models well offline or online and be able to deploy them on streaming data. Because of the problems we're going to try to solve, if we could do it offline, chances are we don't need to solve that problem, right? We want real-time insights. And I think it was Rajiv that that uh, taught me this was, you know, really what the, the issue we're solving, regardless of the problem, is getting actionable information to the right person in that workflow so they can make better informed decisions throughout the entire work process, right? And that really comes down to, you know, IOT systems with sensors, real-time data. And that's why a platform like Cortic really needs to exist to be able to deploy those models online. Yeah, because a lot of times, like uh, people, people are saying that, hey, 70% or 80% all the project stops at POC yep. level, right? Like mm-hmm. they never get deployed. Like there are multiple reasons for that, but like the biggest reason that I think is that, um, you can claim victory only with the offline model, right? Like you say, hey, Brilliant the model. said, yep. Brilliantly <laughs> said, you can't claim victory. Right? right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, um, I think you're spot on. 
like you're spot on. You can't claim victory until you've actually been able to deploy that. So Vinod, I'm curious. So, you know, really when, when, you know, your, your first primary job function, when a customer wants to start to implement AI, they come to you with ideas. We call it ideation. Um, these, these ideation sessions of, you know, I have this data, I'm thinking AI might be able to help here. How do you see what has worked or how do you recommend people start with getting AI um, into their facilities? Yeah, find, finding what, what's required to get started and finding what's going to make the best business case or the best use case within the business is, is, is always a hard thing to do. And, you know, it's one, of those, it's one of those things where if you potentially pick the wrong one and fail, uh, you're going to wrap up the entire project and call the entire project a failure instead of just that use case was poorly chosen. So I think it goes with that saying that obviously everybody, everybody thinks and says, I need to have data. I need to, first of all, choose something where I'm actually monitoring that data, right? And I always, I always draw my analogies back to cooking. If you're, if you're looking at the oven and you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm baking this cake and I need to make sure that the temperature is controlled in this cake and the humidity of the oven is correct and there's no vibration and such, but you're taking measurements once a day for that, you probably don't have a data to, to build an accurate model of what's happening in your oven. Right. right? Exactly. If somebody comes in and opens the oven door and lets that go, but then, you know, you weren't there and you weren't monitoring that. Well, now you don't have that additional piece of data that could contextualize what the actual oven was doing, the operation of the oven and such. Right. So the, avail the availability of data is definitely a, a key aspect of that, but also the availability of relevant data. Right. Would this data actually be useful to me instead of just collecting everything under the sun? Um, and, and then you start to make a decision of, OK, well, you know, what about this product or what about this process or a piece of equipment that I, I can actually, do I want to learn about that can actually have some sort of impact to me, right? right. Um, is, is it like, like I said, if, if you go back to that cooking example, do I want to be able to make sure that the oven, you know, doesn't um, violate its operating parameters or that it's just, that it's just available and reliable every time I want it and you, I need to use it? Right? Can I have some sort of model tell me, listen, if you're going to run this thing for the next 24 hours, you're great. No issues at all. Go, go for it. Right? And then building on that, you, you also want to be able to have these insights in, in, a, in a time span or in some sort of capability where you can actually make a decision. Right? There's no point alerting you that you have a flat tire after you have a flat tire or as your, your, your tire is, is about to you know, puncture itself and, and roll off. That's why we have low pressure sensors. They, award, they notify you before so you can make a decision and say, you know what, I'm not going to get on the road and do this 200 kilometer road trip. I'm going to go detour or, you know, find a, 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 an air pump, fill up my tires and then get on the road. Right. So those are the kinds of things, that, the, the kinds of mentality that we look for in our, um, in our partners and our customers to make sure that their projects follow these, kind, these rules and these guidelines so that one, it's got the most the the, the most capable capability of, for success, mm -hmm. but they can also accurately measure that. It's not just a, oh, we tried something, you know, three months later, it, it failed, and uh, AI is not going to work for us. Right, right, and so I think one of the one of the the fears with that is is, um, you know, the the ease of of, of doing business and and making sure that you know the like anyone listening to this podcast i'm sure has an idea i you know i have some data i wonder if i could you know typically you know when our when r and i say ours are the maintenance or reliability hat on you know you're, you're trying to predict or ideally prevent failures from happening in the first place right 
Um, and I, I think there's a, a misconception that I've seen that we need previous failure data for that to work. And I think there's tremendous value in, you know, just saying something is normal or something is not, right? Um, do, do you guys still see that or do you agree with that of just saying, you know, maybe a, a step might be not to, you know, everyone wants to get to remaining useful life or predict exactly when a failure is going to happen or will a failure happen in 30 days. Um, but have you seen projects where it's still, you know, maybe a crawl, walk, run approach where it's just saying, hey, just, just tell me when something or, or something in particular, what you guys would call a target variable is starting to be abnormal and how abnormal is it and what's causing it? Does that not seem like tremendous value for, for someone in industry? Yep, absolutely. So again, you're looking at being able to um, have that right mindset to ask those questions, right? So if if everybody tries and starts at that level where I'm, I want to implement digital twins and a, a full automated factory, you know, lights out manufacturing and such, then you never really get to appreciate these kinds of projects that that you're mentioning, right? Just being able to understand that when, when my equipment is just not running at 100% and potentially damaging itself. Right. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of wins that are quick, uh, quick to get, because even if you don't have any failure data, you at least have ranges and periods of time that, you know, this asset had no issue with. So we can learn from that and say, okay, well, when, when this asset was in that ideal range or when this asset, when my oven was working completely perfect, this is what everything looked like. This is what everything sounded like. This is what all the vibrations were, the ultrasounds, where the temperature was right. And we, when you learn that entire space, and as you, as you start to deviate from that space, it becomes useful because at, I can look at it from a reliability perspective where when my, when my asset starts to break apart or when something starts to break apart, I can identify the feature that's breaking apart, what's contributing to that feature, does it require maintenance? Or I can also see how this is going to affect my future planning, how this is going to affect my downstream manufacturing potentially, or you know, other assets that, that rely on this. Is, it going to, is, this, is this going to be a bottleneck? Right. So uh, from, from a business outcomes perspective, yes. Right. Everybody approaches it from unplanned downtime reduction. I want to make sure that nothing fails, but just from a maintenance perspective or a reliability perspective, having the operators and having the, like, you know, the, the mechanics who actually know the equipment and rely on the equipment, have confidence in that equipment. That I think is a, is a huge win. And, and then also that opens up the, the gateway for adoption, right? If they're, Absolutely. if they trust in the model, they want to actually build and build more and, and expand on that. That's right. You get one kick, one kick at the can, right? Yeah. If that's some, if that model's going to tell you it's breaking and it, and it doesn't or vice versa, that, yeah. that that's getting, that's done. Right. Throw it out. It's, it's so, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that, you know, are, are, are listening to this that say, you know, I have some data, I have an idea in mind. What, what's the first step they should do um, with that in order to see if, um, AI could help or potentially solve the problem they're trying to solve. So, so they have data, they don't know if it's good or not. They have a problem that they're trying to solve. Hey, I want, I want to detect when this machine is, is acting abnormal or I've had this failure. Can I, will I be able to detect that unique signature, if you will, in the future, how would someone, so they have data, they have a problem to solve. Presumably, they've they've justified the business case because that's why they picked that project. What what would they do next? How would you recommend, based on your experience, what would they do next with that data and that problem? Sure. So so basically, I guess the first step should be always try to see if you can solve it with your like existing tools, like given it the uh, visualization tools or mm -hmm. Excel or whatever. 
<laughs> that you have. Um, see if you can say, okay, if I um, have, you know, those 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 uh, tools as, as well as my historical data, can I just like say plot the 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 the, the lines, the curves, and then just build some kind of alarm system? Right. Can I just yep. do that where um, with some early warning, maybe that will be enough. But most of the time, it might not be enough, right? Um, so, um, so then you are, you will have that. That would be a good sign for say, hey, I, I don't know what to do uh, with this, but but I feel like there is something that can be done or can be can be done better um, than just me using Excel to do it, right? So so that could be one uh, condition where you say, okay, yeah. maybe maybe I should do it. Right. So the the first step is taking a look at that and and taking an honest look, and and I think. You know, th that's great advice because, you know, obviously you're in the business of applying AI, but you're telling them, are you sure you can't solve this with simple, uh, maybe conditional alarming or something like that? Or, or you know, if you were yeah. to, 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 you know, track temperature, right? Yeah, maybe temperature might give us enough warning. Does, does, does that give you enough warning that this machine is operating, right? And, and presumably, let's assume that you said, you know, there's not a, a single variable. So one variable standalone that is indicative of this machine operating abnormal or heading towards failure. So they've ruled out, I can't solve it with Excel. I can't stand on my left foot, bite my tongue to the right and hope it doesn't go. What, what do they do now? Right. So once they say they've done, uh, you know, with their existing tools, they couldn't get anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So really then you say, okay, do I actually have historical data that I can potentially build some model with? And usually you do because uh, you know you have all those historians storing your data, right? We do. We do have a lot of data in in, yeah. in manufacturing exactly. and specifically maintenance and reliability. We do have a lot. It's just all over the place, but we yeah. got a lot. So so yeah. So so just like you said, Blair, um, a bit earlier, where like say usually data is there, but failure is not there. Like you might have one failure or you have no failure at all, right? That's right. So you really want to prevent failures. Um, and then you are saying also like abnormal signal is also super important, right? So I just want to circle back a little bit where um, I was talking about iterative process for approaching AI problems, right? So that's exactly what we should do here as well, where you, first of all, you need a reasonable expectation where you say, um, okay, I, 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 can't do, I can't do anything with what I have right now. I want to go for AI platform. I want to build AI models. Um, but you can't just go from zero to hundred percent where you say, okay, uh, now I want AI, AI model to solve this prob problem completely um, right off of the bat, right? So that would be maybe unrealistic expectation. You might be like, okay, maybe one year down the road, the ROI is gonna be great. But at the very beginning, since I don't have any failures and I don't have any feedback um, for the AI algorithm to learn, to grow, then a baseline model might not be that great. So you might be training uh, like uh, a non-reduction model that detects anomalies for you. And then you have to constantly give feedback to it. Or maybe you give feedback like every two weeks or every month, like to make sure that the model, uh, when I say model, it's really like uh, the, the, the platform. Do you give feedback to the platform and the platform kind of learns um, along the way as well. And then maybe um, six months down the road, you actually, will be able to join a much stronger model now than like, you know, without platform, you might just still saving data in your Excel, logging everything in like uh, your, your local desktop, et cetera, right? Um, so, so that way you now um, 
because you train the model, let the model run, do prediction, et cetera. And then you uh, give feedback to the prediction. And then iteratively, you make the model better and better. And then you can probably say, can I actually get to 100% now? Then your expectation can be more realistic. Understood. And and this is something we've seen multiple times with our customers too, haven't we, Xiao? Like we where where customers come in and um, they they have this idea of I think I had this 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 data to solve the problem. They we run through the data and then you know they they realize, oh, I need to be able to move this sensor down the line or or collect this data in a different aspect and rebuild the model or retune the model as well. So that requires maybe another two, three weeks of collecting data and, and running at it again. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I think the reality is when we look at this now, there's some industries that I have seen specific or companies, and typically the larger one have invested in um, analytic departments or data scientists. And sometimes they're, they're dealing with the manufacturing, they're dealing with the commercial end of their business or anything in between, right? But the reality is a lot of us do not have a Vinode or do not have a Chow sitting next to us like I had the benefit of doing and asking the most stupid questions over and over again until I got it through my thick skull, right? So all those things that you just talked about, you know, of making sure you have the right data, um, making sure, you know, the frequency of data is enough, all those type of things that can typically bite us to say, we can't solve that problem. Do I need to go through, do you guys have to walk me through um, that process or, um, is there some parts that I can do on my own without having, you know, the one of the top five former Grand Kegel masters in the world guiding me through it? It's just to give away our secrets here now, Blair. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, real, real, realistically, this is almost like a self-qualification for, for not only um, our customers and our partners, but really self-qualification to see if a project is valid for you, right? Um, or for your reliability team or engineering team. Uh, realistically, you go through two major checks. You're looking at things from a data management perspective, and you're looking at things from a data analytics perspective, right? From the from the data management perspective, you want to make sure that you're actually one collecting data, relevant data that can be used, right? Your checklist, you go into that checklist and say, can I actually do this with simple analytics, as Xiao said? Do I need simple rules? Do I can I deploy um, a few if and if and then statements and then capture this with early early priority alarms? And then as things start to get more and more complex, so maybe your simple rules aren't, uh, aren't just using two or three parameters. Maybe your simple rules require, you know, if I, if I wanna make sure the differential pressure in my room doesn't drop, I need to look at my air supply. I need to look at my return vents pressure. I need to make sure the doors aren't open. All those different things become a lot more complex. And that's kind of starts to automatically draw you and say, well, do I want to build a very complex engine that's so sensitive that anything can trigger it or so uh, insensitive that nothing can trigger it? Right, so that'll automatically draw you and say, this is where I need to move and consider my analytics. My analytics needs to be something like machine learning or uh, taking into consideration all these different multivariate parameters. So there's a lot of self, uh, self-qualification required and a lot of self-qualification, again, naturally comes from this uh, data management and that data analytics perspective. If you have the data to get started, try the simplest analytic, analytic um, analysis and, and start getting more and more complex to, from there. Understood. Now, when when we were talking just before this podcast, um, you know, and I, I know you and and, and Chow um, really worked hard on this, and and really what the goal was at Cortic was trying to 
automate the best practices, the way you would approach a problem. I'm talking to you, Vinod, you, the way you would very analytically ap- approach a problem in terms of um, defining the problem you're trying to solve, merging data together that's typically in siloed places um, in an offline perspective. So le- most likely a CSV format. So taking those best practices and also combining it with the way Chow would use machine learning. And you, you know, you, you really spend a lot of effort and time developing that into um, what you guys call a project builder, part of the Cortex platform to be able to allow users to, to really experiment, to um, try to see if they can, um, with the tools that are available, solve that problem with offline first to support that case to then move it to an online project. Um, is that, did I word that right? Yep, you've got it. So um, like you had mentioned, a lot of that heavy lifting from the data science side of things, you know, pulling all the data from my different data sources, and then I have to join everything together and, and make sure that file is neat, and, uh, neat enough for, for analysis. Uh, that's a lot of heavy lifting work that's that's done. And and Shah, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but usually data preparation, data um, uh, formatting and, and, and integration is about 60, 70% of the work before I even get to my analysis side. Or more than that, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right? So so the way the way we've approached it or the way we're thinking about it at Quartic is let's, let's try and automate as much of that work as possible. Now, this is not gonna work for every solution, but for those solutions that are straightforward, again, and a lot of those things in, in engineering and reliability tend to be, you know, time series data, looking at mm-hmm. um, uh, looking at outliers, looking at changing in patterns. For those kinds of solutions, what we've got is this workflow that essentially uh, takes care of that data preparation and data analysis as much as possible to make whatever data set you have analysis ready. So that once all that heavy lifting is taken care of, and then the SME, the engineer, the the reliability engineer, the maintenance expert can come in and say, okay, well, you know what? Let me try building these six different kinds of models and see what kind of output I get. See if I can capture this failure or or identify when my asset was acting a little weird and sounding a little weird, right? So our our intent is if we can alleviate much much of that data science expertise that's required, you can put in a lot more effort into the engineering and process and asset expertise then. Right. And we simply, and, and sorry, when you say simply, because it wasn't simple, but when you, when you bring it back to, you know, how we think as maintenance lies people, we, we think of, um, you know, we'll, we'll go back to the roots of, of RCM failure mode and effect analysis. And I think when I take an objective look at the, the reliability module, if you will, within the Cortex platform, the way it's designed is using those best practices, that foundation, right? So defining your FMEAs and what is great is what is an output of a model? So an output of a model is anomaly detection, or you're, you're doing a, a vector, or you're doing a prediction of something. What is this going to be in the future and how can I avoid it? And really those two things. So, you know, how abnormal, how often have I run in abnormal situations? Of course, equipment fails because things are abnormal. It's, it's a lack of lubrication. It's vibrating more or operating out of, um, the design content context, which I think is, you know, a, a study was like 80% of machines fail because they're operated out of design context, right? So when you start looking at that, I think what you guys have done really good at is linking that back, not just to an individual value, but to risk, right? Really what our job as maintenance reliability to people is reduce the risk, right? And the way I look that back and I, and I, and I preach this is, you know, you can smoke your entire life. You have a higher risk of a lot of bad things, 
but it doesn't mean you are going to get those bad things, right? You can have a smoker and they live to 90 and they're happy and they're healthy. And you have someone that unfortunately inhaled secondhand smoke once and, you know, and they're, um, have the downfall of that. So I think linking it back to, to risk was a, was a, you know, I hate using the word disruption, but it was really, you know, challenging how AI gets applied specifically to, to reliability. I think you guys have done a great job on that. Um, yeah, the, the, again, just to, to add on to that, the intent is again, if we could look at it from that engineer's perspective and that reliability perspective, capture their practices, which obviously a lot have to do with risk, then um, again, you, you, you build more natural confidence in the model, in the AI system itself. You start to trust it more right. and teach it more as well. And it's also explainable. So you don't have to be, well, vibration can be an input into the system is you're tracking that risk over time. How quickly or how much risk am I putting on this machine day after day? What was my risk when I started? What was my risk now? Right. And what can I do to, to lower that risk? Right. Unfortunately, you know, it's very difficult to go back up into what we call the PDF curve. Once you start down that roller coaster of failure, you're going down. But what you can try to do is prolong that failure. Right. Mm -hmm. So risk from a reliability engineer, a maintenance person's point of view and risk from a C-suite. Right. It means the same thing. Right. D different actions are going to be taken from it, obviously. Right. But it's a very consumable way to look at the outputs of these machine learning models, which I think is, is fantastic. Um, so I know we got to, we got to run here shortly. I do have a question is, you know, look at all the applications you guys have been doing. Um, you know, are there specific applications that stand out into your mind saying this is a, you know, this is really a great application. Um, you obviously don't get into very specifics or customer names and stuff like that. We don't want to get in trouble, but um, are there certain applications that you have worked on or, or even, um, you know, at a high level, talk to a customer about and working on in the funnel that really stands out as, you know, this is a great example of where AI can get, start getting applied to our industry. What I think that um, uh, makes this industry stand out for applying AI really is that um, you potentially can um, combine, you know, your subject matter expertise with your, um, you know, data-driven approach, right? So really um, hybrid model with uh, say dual twin with first principle models. A lot of times that can solve a lot of problems. Um, and, and, but, but, but like, uh, uh, it's not that easy to build a dual twin uh, for any given asset, right? So, so the first step would be more or less like, if, can you actually do um, some kind of optimization without a dual twin? And what we did for that client um, was really just that client was just building up a, a brand new uh, equipment, basically where um, some optimization is desperately needed. Um, so, so, but they don't really have a you know digital representation of their of the equipment, right? Um, so, so really um, applying AI there is challenging because you don't have data, nor you do have the simulation, right? So. So, so basically you need a mechanism where you can, you can make the AI learn on the fly and learn very quickly, where you can just tweak the set point and, and then just optimize the, the output, the outcome basically. So that, part, that one is really interesting because um, we didn't really think problem that way until we kind of got that project where we say, okay, usually you need to start with some data, right? 
but they say, hey, it's a brand new equipment. We don't even have sensors stored yet, right? Um, then like, then they, we say, hey, do you have a dual twin then? Then, you know, they, they, it's super complex to build a dual twin for that process apparently. So they don't have that user. And that makes things super fun. Good. Um, so I think we're, we're running out of time here, but I know you got a hard stop. Um, there's, there's so many questions we could go into um, and, and really dive down. Um, so I think, I think we'll have to have you on again for another follow-up series here where maybe we can pick just one application and just, uh, it, obviously if the customer allows or we can scrub the name and just, just really diving deep into there. Um, so how do, how do customers find out more about yourself? How do they reach out to you? How do they get in touch with Cortic? Yep. You can reach out to us in any means necessary Our our either our emails, which is basically our names at Cortic.ai or uh, through the website Cortic.ai. There's a lot of information teaching you either how to get started with AI, how to look for the right project, uh, what you need to qualify yourself to be able to say, I, I have enough uh, enough resources to basically even do a POC with the project. And again, not necessarily everything uh, in AI needs to be high level, millions of dollars. You could start with a very simple project with a very simple use case. Uh, and all that information can be found on our website, Cortec.ai. And uh, you could schedule a demo, get out, download product information, look at the platform a little bit more in detail, but it's best to be able to look at your, your, your data sets and your assets and your shop floor first before um, before being able to say, you know, I want to implement AI. So definitely look at evaluating yourselves and then evaluate, feel free to evaluate Cortic. Obviously we're more than excited to get in touch with you as well. Perfect. Well, thank you, Vinod. Thank you, Chow. That, that was fantastic. I keep on learning more every time I talk to you guys and I'm sure the listeners did. Um, so we will for sure um, have you guys back on again to dive more deeper. Um, what I'm going to do is actually ask the listeners after this podcast to, to post their questions, which I'm sure will, will fill up a, a whole, uh, whole list of, of, of ideas for our, our next podcast. So I, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Brad. Thanks for having us, Blair. Well, everybody, that was my interview with Vinod Rodriguez and Chao Zhu Wang over at Cortic.ai. I hope you got some value out of it. I, we didn't get to go as deep as, I, as I'd like to get, so we'll definitely have them on again. And I ask if you do have some follow-up questions, um, please post them on on LinkedIn or feel free to email us if there's anything specific about this podcast you would uh, like us to dive deeper in next episode. Thank you again. Have a great day.